Let's open up in prayer before we get started, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just come together as a family this morning, Lord, to open your word, to hear what you have to say to your people. And uh, what a blessing that we are a family. Uh, if we've accepted Christ in our hearts, we are a family of a, of a kingdom. And I just think that's so awesome. And as I was listening to uh, Ed, actually, this morning, clear back east preaching, and, and people coming online, I just thought, wow, we have brothers and sisters all over the world. And whether they've already been up hearing a message this morning or just getting at it, Lord, uh, we're just so thankful that you're, you're, you're our Father and that you uh, give us your word to hang on to and your Son to save us. So we uh, just pray that you would bless this time, bless my words, Lord, that you would push me aside, that this would be about you and your Holy Spirit and your calling on our lives. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So if I could get you to turn to Luke chapter 15. And we're going to talk about really what is all, it's three parables, but they're all one, kind of. And before we get going on this particular chapter, these three parables with one theme, I want to take a, a little journey here this morning. I want to take a step back in time, take a look at the beginning, not the beginning of Luke, but the beginning of God's plan to reclaim what was lost. Because that's what these parables are about. And what was lost? God's world. Broken, left in tatters by sin. Thankfully, right from the beginning, our wonderful God had a plan to reclaim what was lost. And as a bonus, his plan was to use his creation as his partners in that plan. So what did he do? He chose a people. Israel, the Jews, and a place, the promised land. A promised land that was at the crossroads of the ancient world. A promised land where he would make his name known through those chosen people And you see, the Promised Land was at the center of a major trade route that stretched from Egypt to Babylon. And by living in this Promised Land and obeying God's commands, these chosen people couldn't help but display his character. Make him known to the entire world. What a great plan. Yet those chosen people struggled to be faithful. They were blessed by God's hand, but they repeatedly, they turned away uh, to worship gods of other nations. Over and over again, God's prophets called them back to him and back to their mission. In Isaiah, we read in, in Isaiah 43, verses 11 and 12, it says, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I and not some foreign god among you. And here's the important thing to also to hear. Listen to this. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. 
that was and is the commission of God's people. He took them out of slavery at the foot of Mount Sinai. He established a partnership with them with a plan to restore creation. And that partnership between God and his people who are called to live in faithful covenant with him would pave the way for the redemption of all humanity. What a plan. So by placing them on the crossroads of the ancient world where all nations could see them, stand out, they still stand out today, he commissioned them to be a witness to that world, declaring his name, declaring his reputation, declaring his identity, declaring his character to all nations. And God intended that they accomplish this mission not just by telling people about him, but by living in such a way that the eyes and the ears of all people would be opened. So all who knew him and worship him, or that so all would know him and worship him, they were not just to bring the message, they were to be the message. God says of his people in Exodus 19.6, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? As we read in 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter says the same about you and me in Christ. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Two separate peoples, both called to be a nation of priests, Jews and Gentiles. Neither group was called to a life of service to obtain redemption. Redemption is by God's grace alone. You know it and I know it. No, God's desire for his people as a kingdom of priests was and is to live in such a way, to live such righteous lives that other people would come to know God as their Redeemer and their Lord. And then God sent his son, Jesus, the Messiah, to be a witness to Israel and through them to the rest of the world. Absolutely, Jesus is our Lord, he's our Redeemer. But he has also come to call Israel back to her mission of being a kingdom of priests to the nations. And his repeated debates with the religious uh, Jews of his day concerning this, uh, his contact with sinners are examples of this message. He chose 12 disciples, which were a reflection of the 12 tribes, to first receive God's commission and then take that commission and witness to Israel and to be like Israel to all nations. And today that royal priesthood falls on you and it falls on me. And it falls on everybody who follows Jesus. We are commissioned to do the exact same thing. 
We are commissioned to stand between God and the world in all the chaos that's going on today and proclaim the knowledge of God through our words and how we live so that others will experience his redemption and his restoration. This is our responsibility as a royal priesthood. So now, let's look at Luke 15 with that background in mind, okay, to see what Jesus is trying to get across to these priests as he addresses their concerns. Verses 1 and 2 say, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, when we, we study Scripture, we talk about Scripture, we can be overly harsh, I think, sometimes with the Pharisees. Uh, their title uh, is really synonymous with hypocrisy, uh, saying one thing and living another way. But we also have to realize that most Pharisees were, were extremely devoted to God. They were passionate about being set apart from the world. Even Paul talks about how passionate he was even before his conversion. But somewhere along the way, they drifted off course, just like you can, just like I can, and they'd forgotten the purpose of their holiness, which was not to make themselves acceptable to God by holy living, because we know that's not possible. If you think you're going to make yourself holy uh, and acceptable to God through how you live, no. In Christ, you're holy and acceptable to God. It's by grace alone. No, their purpose, just like ours now, was to be a witness to the unrighteous and the unsaved. They were to be a reflection of God and His grace to show who God is, to show His love for all His creation. But these priests had forgotten their true calling and instead they're trying to make themselves and especially others acceptable to God by human effort. They were no longer witnesses to the lost or ambassadors or representatives for God. They had lost that. So they come across Jesus and he's claiming to be the Messiah and he's doing something unthinkable. In that culture, he's eating with the enemy the sinner. And if you remember, to eat with someone in that culture was a sacramental act signifying acceptance on a very deep level. Jesus was engaging and accepting and affirming people who were considered to be unclean. And his critics viewed this behavior as an endorsement of the lifestyle of these sinners. You're eating with them, therefore you must be okay with, with their lifestyle. No wonder they're upset. But Jesus was actually the example for them to establish close relationships with sinners so that through him they would know and they would experience the Father's love. Not to endorse the sin, but to touch the life 
of the sinner. But these Pharisees didn't see it. So in response to their disdain, Jesus uses the, these, these parables. So let's continue. Verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. That's powerful. First of all, Jesus is speaking to people here who are very familiar with shepherds and their sheep. And because they knew sheep, they know the value of a sheep. And that a lost one has to be found or it's likely to go lie under a bush or stand on a hillside and cry out until it dies of thirst or is ravaged by a predator. They probably listened to this and wondered, okay, what kind of a shepherd, if he's a good one, loses a sheep in the first place in this kind of climate where it's hot, it's desolate, it's a lot of wilderness? They would also know that finding a lost sheep would be hard, hard work. It takes effort. And another thing, Jesus is speaking to people who grew up knowing the Hebrew Bible. So his listeners, these Pharisees especially, knew and understood the metaphor of God being the good shepherd and of Israel being his flock. None of what Jesus is alluding to here is lost on his, on his audience. They knew their own history and they had experienced being lost sheep as people and that God had found and restored them to his loving care over and over again and these Pharisees would have understood that Jesus was calling them out a little bit here putting on a little bit of pressure in essence what he's saying to them is you guys are losing sheep why aren't you going out and looking for them He's saying, you know that God has restored you. So remember your mission and go and help find and restore others. Find his sheep. Find my sheep. This parable is a reminder for these Pharisees that are listening here, but it's a reminder for you and I. We need to remember the mission. We're called to join him in search of lost sheep. Doesn't matter where the sheep is. It's not an excuse. It doesn't matter how far the sheep has wandered away. Well, you know what, they're so far. Why would I go that far to find a sheep? And it doesn't matter why the sheep has become lost. It's irrelevant. 
God wants his followers, his human shepherds, to be good shepherds. And no matter what the cost, find the sheep. And look at the result of finding one sheep. I'm going to reread verses 5 to 7 here. And when he had found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What a joyous occasion. Now here's a question to think about. I'll throw it out there. Did the lost sheep have to do anything to be found? Nothing. Nothing. No, it was all the shepherd. The good shepherd even goes so far as he puts that lost sheep on his shoulders to carry him home. That's what a loving shepherd does. Doesn't wait for the sheep to return. He goes looking. And he brings the sheep home. Just as the good shepherd Jesus did. He didn't wait for you and I to return. Or you and I would still be lost. He came looking. And he put us all on his shoulders. You know what I was thinking about that? And how they would drape the sheep over their shoulders. And you'd have to hold on to the sheep and carry it home. And it occurred to me, what does that look like? It looks like a cross. We used to raise sheep. I know what it's like to go out and look for sheep. Jesus put us on his shoulders on that cross and brought us home. And for you and for me, there was such rejoicing in heaven. And for the good shepherd, there was praise and honor and glory for a job well done. That's powerful. And this parable continues. It says, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Another lost and found story. And this time Jesus chooses this new character. Quite different, really, from the shepherd. This woman has lost a small yet valuable coin in her home. Now this parable would probably speak to others who were listening who might not fully grasp what it was like to tend a flock of sheep. They might not really understand it. You know, by doing this, he'd probably engage more people, more, in, more of his audience. And to better understand this part of this parable, we should step into a typical Galilean home. And you probably know this, but we need to step in if you don't and see what a Galilean home looks like. They were generally made of dark stone, didn't have a lot of windows. In some rooms, the floors were simply beaten earth or mud plaster. In others, larger cobblestones were laid that allowed any water that came in 
to drain away between the stones. Now people who heard this part of the parable would understand that most of the rooms didn't have a lot of light and that a rough floor provided many, many hiding places for this coin that's lost. And the only assistance this woman would have in her search would be a coarse broom. It would either be made of straw, date palm stems, and she'd have a small oil lamp to provide light from a single flame. Finding that lost coin would have been dusty, tiresome work. But we don't read here that she, you know what, it's just too hard. No, there was no deterrent. The lost has value. If we can take anything from today, the lost have value. That's so important. Therefore, the time and effort to find the lost is well justified. The only person who wouldn't search is the one who sees little value in what is lost. This would have been a rich woman. I doubt very much she'd have spent a lot of time looking for the lost, the lost coin. And Jesus says something at the start of each parable that I found a bit challenging. I thought it was interesting. In verse 4 he says, What man does not go after the one that is lost? And in verse 8, What woman does not seek diligently until she finds what is lost. In other words, who doesn't search for the lost? It's not an accusation, just a matter-of-fact statement. Who doesn't do this? Who doesn't do this? And another thing I see here, God doesn't seg segregate male and female roles here. You know, I think when Jesus speaks about something, there's times we can miss things, there's times we can misinterpret things, there's times we might have not all the information we need. But when Jesus spoke in these words throughout the Bible, I don't think he ever said anything that wasn't important, whether we got it or not. God doesn't segregate male and female roles here. All are called to this mission to find what is lost. I'm going to read verse 9 again. And when she had found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What a great reminder to share with each other how God is working in us, around us, and through us. How often do we come together, we call our friends, and say, hey, you know what? My brothers and sisters in Christ, come and rejoice with me. I have found what was lost. Praise to God for what he has done. Let's make it a part of our mission to share these stories more. Not in pride, look what I did, but as giving God glory, as an encouragement, it's okay. Now we come to the last part of this parable. We call it the 
parable of the prodigal son. It's not a separate parable. Our three stories are part of Jesus' response to these Pharisees, to their criticism. The first two parts were about finding the lost. This one is about loss, but it's about a lost son who totally rejects the father's house and all it represents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now before, again, before I jump into this, uh, we need to understand a little more about the culture here again, okay? First of all, we need to understand this was a patriarchal society and people lived as extended families. Everything belonged to the family from generation to generation. And the patriarch, the father, used the family resources to care for the family. Now as the firstborn son matured, he's going to undergo training. And his training is to be, uh, to, to step into that patriarchal leadership if and when the father finally passes away. He would be trained to always, always seek the best interests of the family, which he would one day become the leader of. Now with that in mind, we can start to see that for this younger son to demand what he's demanding, his share of this estate is unheard of. It's a big deal. And it would have shocked Jesus' audience to hear such a thing. The fact that he's even telling this kind of a story, like who does this? Inheritances were for the whole family. They weren't divided. A little bit to you, and a little bit to you, and a little bit to you. It was for everyone. And by asking for his share, this son is showing that he had very little, if any, respect or care for his family. That he had very little respect or care for his heritage and for the traditions of that heritage and even for his faith. Just by asking this of his father, family relationships would be seriously affected here. Not to mention his father's heart is going to be broken because this isn't how this boy is, was raised. This is a culture where honor is everything. And the son would have humiliated his father in front of his entire family, in front of his entire village, and in turn would be shamed in, in front of the entire region. Again, this is a big deal. In our Western cu culture, you know what? We don't really grasp the magnitude of the shame and dishonor here. And we shouldn't overlook the older brother here either. He says and does nothing. Instead, he seems 
you know what, kind of content to take his own portion. But that's another discussion. Now at the end of verse 12, we're told that the father actually does the unthinkable here. And he divides his property. Why do you think he does that? Why? If it's such a big deal, why would he go ahead and follow through without reprimanding the son, without being filled with anger and disgust? Well, you know what? Our Heavenly Father is pretty amazing. He promises to give us the desires of our heart. That's pretty amazing. Now, his hope is that your desire and my desire, our desires, are in line with his. That's his hope. But when they aren't, he can and often will use those desires to teach you something and to teach me something. To give us that glimpse of how foolish and off track we really can be in hopes that, you know what, that we're going to repent and come back and seek His will in our lives. He has His ways. But you know what? When a person is so hard-hearted, they want nothing to do with God ever in any way. And I'm sure some of you have come across those kinds of people. I've sat in hospitals when my neighbor is dying literally dying and Ken don't you preach to me nothing to lose oh my gosh again in a hospital with a good friend friend of the families for years comes to all the functions sits at the table while we say grace together while we talk about God together no will not yield at all. That hard-heartedness, those that want nothing to do with God ever in any way, God in His way is so loving and we might not see it that way but He grants them their greatest desire, an eternity without God. Well, that's not a loving God. God would... <laughs> that's not what a loving God does. Yes, it is. Why would you spend eternity with me if you hate me and you want nothing to do with me? Why? So I will give you your heart's desire. That's powerful. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in, in reckless living. A far country. The land of the Gentiles. Dun, dun, dun. Spiritually and physically, he could not be farther, farther from the Father's house. But it's what his heart desires. This young man wasn't going to go into a far country to be a light to the Gentiles to be a priest. He was going to see and experience how the Gentiles lived. 
rather than going to influence those for God, he was going to indulge in his heart's desires. He's in a new kingdom. A kingdom where the emperor is God and life is lived for personal pleasure, pleasure, leisure, and power. This young man was faced with a choice. Be a man of the world or be a man of God. You know, in those days, um, the Jews wore on their robes their tassels, which were a reminder of who they were and who they were with God. You wonder if at some point he cut those off. You know, it's a choice as old as creation itself. Be a man of the world or a woman of the world or a man or a woman of God. He's kind of the antithesis of Paul because Paul went to the Gentiles but Paul went as a priest, a priest for God. You know, it's not that we eat with sinners. It's why we eat with sinners. What's the heart's desire? What was Jesus' heart's desire here? It was to bring home lost sheep. We'll continue to verse 16. I'm going to reread verse 13. Okay, not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe, severe famine arose in that country, and he, began, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him out into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So we're told he squandered his property in reckless living. What this means is that he spent more than he had on things he really couldn't afford until he had nothing left. He's bankrupt financially. He's bankrupt spiritually. He's bankrupt morally. And for a time, he had the finances he needed to allow him to choose the lifestyle that really appealed to him and he dove in head first, been there, done that. But the bottom line here is that this young man had totally chosen to reject his faith. Totally chosen to reject his moral upbringing, to seek this illusion of happiness in a land of wealth, consumerism, immorality. And when this famine came, he had nothing, nothing physical, nothing spiritual. He had nothing to draw on. And whether it's wealth or anything else, each of us can get caught up in pursuits that cause us to lose sight of the purpose that God has called us to. Each of us can have that tendency to be prodigals in different ways if we aren't careful. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I will rise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your servants. Now let's be clear here. I know Matt has talked about it. I'll talk about it again. That's not repentance. That's a plan. He's got a plan. This man, young man, is facing a hopeless situation and he needs help. He also knows what the consequences of his actions are going to be back home. Losing family property to a Gentile was pretty much unforgivable in the first century. There was a Jewish custom that any person who lost the family wealth and chose to return to the community would be expelled from that community. You're done. Add to that the humiliation this young man had caused his father, asking for it in the first place. And there's just really little or no hope for this man. And I wonder if he was pretty concerned about going home. I wonder if he was a little frightened about going home. You think about those who have fallen and wandered far from the Father. And how many of them, and I know they're out there, that are concerned about going back, going back home, going back to the Father, and just repenting. We go on in verse 20. And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What a picture. First of all, in order for the father to have seen the son coming from a long way off, he had to be actively, actively looking for him. Every day, he would actually have to go to the edge of the village and wait and watch. It wasn't a matter of just, these were small, these were homes that were clustered together in this community with small little alleyways or roads between them. It wasn't just gazing out the window, oh, here comes Jimmy Bob. This is a man who's been watching. This is a father who has been watching and waiting for his son. This is faith. Secondly, traditional Middle Easterners wearing robes don't run ever. End of story. They never have. To do so would be deeply humiliating. Even today, such an action would be considered shameful. Now the term here for running is a term used for the runners in games in the stadium. 
Can you still hear me okay? Is this working? Okay. So the father ran as though he was in a race. My lost son is coming home. And these Pharisees would have known who Jesus was talking about here. They would have known he's talking about God the Father. And what can we see here? What is the picture we get? Well, that the lost are found and safely restored to the Father's house, not because they earned their way back, but because God, the loving Father, seeks them. Secondly, that the Father isn't sitting and stewing and filled with anger and humiliation. How dare you leave me? He is filled with love and compassion for his wandering son. You know, there are those who might struggle to picture God in the Hebrew Bible as this loving, seeking Father. Jesus' audience would not and did not. From the beginning, the Hebrew Bible describes God and his relationship with his people using the image of a loving father and a faithful husband. God is shown over and over as the father who seeks his children, who have not simply broken the rules, but have broken their relationship with him. He is the father who would seek his lost son and do anything to bring him back. The father in this parable, just like God, had to act in an extraordinary manner to restore this son, to bring him back to this family. Because you know what? The community, once they see him, they're going to want to expel him. They don't, he's, he's done these acts of humiliation. He's been a disgrace. We don't want you. The father had to get to that young man before anybody else and show grace and forgiveness so they, or so that he would be restored to the family in front of the community. And we see that the father embraced him and kissed him. And the father accepted the grace that was given to him. And finally, he truly repents. You see, repentance is about seeing and knowing we are unworthy of sonship, daughtership. We're unworthy of it. But accepting the grace that's given nonetheless. And to seal this deal, the father has this meal prepared. And we just talked about the significance of this shared meal in this culture said something. It said something to the son and it said something to the community. That meal would embody love and forgiveness all around. And then he has this, this best robe that's brought out and put on him. Places this ring this signet ring on his finger, which would probably have the family official seal on it. And he has shoes put on his feet. You might think, okay, he has shoes put on his feet. But at that time, only children wore shoes. Slaves went barefoot. This man was not a slave. 
He was now back to being a child. These are all signs that the father embraced the son back into the full family member membership and the celebration was on. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and, and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has, who has devoured your property with, prost with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. You know, we often give most of the attention to this, of this parable to that younger son, bad kid. But this older son's response here is important to take note of. I remember back when the son demanded his share, this younger son demanded his share of the inheritance, and I mentioned that the elder son didn't do anything, didn't say anything. The older son should have stepped in. He should have prevented his father from dividing the family estate between him and his brother. But you know what? He seems to be content to receive his share as well. Just be quiet and take what I'm given here. He didn't have any objections until, he had no objections until his father welcomed back, welcomed back his brother. And what does he do? He criticizes his father welcoming and eating with a sinner. I'm going to say that again. He criticizes his father for welcoming and eating with a sinner, which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing to Jesus. The older brother, his, his refusal to participate in the celebration, it's a humiliation to the father, again. His father's taken it from all sides, but again, this father shows love and grace. When we read this parable, we can look at, at the older son as being the good one, he appears to do all the things required of him. He goes so far as to tell his father what a great job he's done. I'm a good son. Look what I've done for you. I have served you. I've never disobeyed your commands. But in truth, his serving and obedience has been self-serving for his own gain. And servant, service that comes with the price tag usually leads to resentment. He was certainly faithful to his father. That's not up for debate here. But his reasons were off. They were a little wrong. His service was, his service was not out of genuine love for the father. 
And we certainly don't see a love for his brother much in here either. The older son here is really this picture of, of the Pharisees here. His attitude reflects their attitude. His attitude can reflect our attitude sometimes. It's a message for you and I, as well as these Pharisees. Examine our hearts. Do we deserve God? Do we serve God, pardon me, because we love him with all our heart and soul and strength or because we want something from him? Are we caught up just like this older son and the Pharisees with this notion that our works are what counts and what will lead to our rewards? The father did not give up on either son here. I think that's amazing. The father expends shameless grace on each one and he does the same for you and I and look at the father's response to his eldest son at the end of the chapter here and bear in mind we never find out if the son ever changes his attitude but he says to him son you're always with me and all that is mine is yours no condemnation father merely merely expresses his love for this misguided eldest son Gives him a gentle correction by pointing out to him that, you know what, there's a reason for the celebration here. That a dead son has been found and now has life. That's how the father sees things. And it's how the elder son should see things if his heart is right. What I love here is that the wrong attitude and heart aren't, far on, on, aren't fodder for harsh condemnation, but for just loving correction. For the Pharisees, for you, for me, for sinners Jesus is eating with, what grace. You know, I think there are times, I certainly for me, but maybe all of us uh, can be guilty of making God's grace smaller than it really is. You know, I wonder when we all get to stand in heaven for God if we're going to be shocked at who God has shown grace to I'm going to come across somebody and think really? <laughs> him? her? and they're going to probably be doing the same to me Ken's here? Um, no seriously I think we will be shocked at who God has shown grace to Peter asked Jesus in Matthew 18 he says Lord how often will my my brothers, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many times as seven? And Jesus answers, I do not, I do not say seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. And it's a reference to an unlimited amount of forgiveness to the repentant brother. But also something, I know I've missed it here. <laughs> Peter also asked, how many times will my brother sin against me? And the answer is the same. 77. Your brother, your sister is going to sin against you. And that was a challenge to Peter and to each one of us for sure. But it's a statement about the loving forgiveness of God toward his children when they come with a repentant heart. And it's what is reflected in the father to his two sons here. 
In this parable this morning, we know the younger, repent, younger repented and was quickly brought back into the family, brought back into the community. But what do we see regarding this elder son? I see compassion and grace and a promise that he will not be condemned and he's not going to be disowned. doesn't mean we should relish in our selfish acts and pursue selfish gain through our service to God. We're told, you know what, guard your heart and guard your mind to all those things of the flesh. But what it does mean is that our God is a God who will work with us right where we are and love us even though we have these misguided attitudes sometimes and selfish desires sometimes. He's the God of grace, forgiveness, and understanding. You know, when I look at this, in this whole reading this morning, Jesus and the Father are the only two depicted here in this narrative that truly have spiritual maturity. Everybody else, just like you and I, are works in progress. And God doesn't give up on a work in progress or we'd all be doomed. Thank God for that. John 1.16 says, For in his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. How wonderful. So what can we take home from all this today? Each one of us might see something different today that speak to, speaks to us individually. And what we do with it, it's up to you and it's up to me. But we need to know this. The lost are of utmost importance to God who does not wish any to perish but that all should reach repentance. But we have to be willing to meet the lost on their turf. We have to be careful that we don't become insulated and isolated as individuals or a group. We have to be careful that we don't become critical and harsh toward those who are lost. Why would we expect any other behaviors from them? They're lost. Always remember, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and we are called to that same mission. And we shouldn't forget that he did it by becoming involved in people's lives, by eating with sinners, so that they could experience God's love so we should do the same. And we need to speak up more. When we see Christians displaying callousness and hatred toward the lost, they should be sitting down and eating with them. They should be displaying God in their manner and in their words. Jesus came for sinners. He loves us, welcomes us, he ate with you, and he ate with me, and he's going to eat with others through us. If we claim to be God's witnesses, the word in flesh, we must follow Jesus' example. To be a witness is to live in a certain way. It's as much as about how we live as what we say. Enabled by his spirit, guided by his text and supported by his community, God intends for us to seek out his lost children, love them, accept them, not the sin, 
and make God known to them so they will welcome his redemption. Allow him to restore their broken lives and bring them back home. I'll ask the, I'll ask the worship team to come back up again. And while they're getting themselves set up here, I best get out of the way. But let's just, uh, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we can fall so far short, we can be condemning, we can be judgmental, we can um, get off track as far as our mission in reaching out to the lost and doing the work that you set us about for. We are called to be priests. Lord, help us to take that on. But Lord, we need your help. We need you to guide us, to strengthen us, to empower us. And Lord, remind us every day just how um, miserable we can be. Lord, remind us every day that we have a job to do. And I just pray for each and every person here that as we leave this place, that we will remember when we come across the lost, love them, care for them, eat with them, show them who God is in, in each one of us, who Christ is, is in each and every one of us. And I just pray this mightily in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen.